Okay, we would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising of the Siksika, Panaki, and I don't want to pronounce that wrong. What? Nope. The Kani. Kani First Nations, thank you, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Okay, I'm going to pray out loud. Janine will pray out loud. Can we have two volunteers from the crowd? Corey, one. Wyatt, two. Uh, Kahu, piece of gum, piece of No got they wasting. Ksanap, you, Yutin. Okawi Mao, i.e., victim agonal, creator, creation, God. I ask for your guidance today. I ask for your, your willingness and your, your courage and your strength to, to try to do a good study here today. I ask for the, the experiences in my past life and the experiences in my most recent experiences and whatever I need to, to do to bring to the surface to help heal myself and to help others. Creator, I ask for the words and the clarity of mind today as, as we get into this. And I ask that you shake away the jitters. I ask that you keep an open mind for myself and everybody in here that we're able to learn something new about ourselves, about the program and about our creator. I thank you for the opportunity, my God. Hi, hi. God, thank you for this opportunity to use the space to get together and and work on bettering ourselves and connecting, learning how to be happy and effective in recovery, and learning how to have true friendships with people for the first time for some of us, and learning how to keep those friendships for the first time for some of us. And um, theme that's been coming up this past week that I want to pray for is just the idea of, of you being there when, when we're standing on the mountain knowing that we didn't get there by ourselves and also while we're in the valley, knowing that we're not alone and learning to have humility in both those cases, humility to know that we can't do these things on our own and, and that when we're alone, humility to know that we can ask for help. So we're right where Janine ended us last week. <laughs> I hope you guys are all excited about these two paragraphs. <laughs> we set the bar really high for this. Uh, doctor's opinion, XXVII. Let's reread this. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so we're starting right after the letter. The physician who, at our request, gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon us his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we have, what we have, what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe. 
that the body of the alcoholic is quite as sorry guys as abnormal as his mind it did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives these things were true to some extent in fact to a considerable extent with some of us but we were sure that our bodies were as sickened as well in our belief any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete the doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us as laymen our opinion to this to its soundness may of course be, mean little but as the ex-problem drinker we can say that his explanation makes good sense it explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account though we work out our solution on a spiritual as well as an altruistic plane we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged more often than not it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached as he then has a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer okay so on the previous page there's three things in this first two pages of the doctor's opinion so in the first two pages of the doctor's opinion it actually gives me everything i need to know for the solution to my whole life it highlights three things super importantly okay the first thing was on the first page which we read last week i'm just going to touch base on it again it is on the first page of the doctor's opinion and it says as part of rehab his rehabilitation he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics impressing upon them that they must do still likewise with others this has become the basis of the rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families so essentially it's saying as part of my rehab i should be helping other alcoholics it's part of my recovery i'm impressing upon you if i'm working with you that you must do likewise with still others and when i have somebody approach me and they ask me to work with them i don't just say yes right away i say okay we're going to have a coffee and then we go have a coffee and i qualify them i ask them a bunch of questions give me your story in five or ten minutes or less and are you willing to pass this on when you're done because that's that's the deal and if they're not really willing to pass this on you know i really try to guide them to another sponsor because part of the deal for me is we pass this on you can't keep what you don't have um the problem is is most people in the program won't do that part and as we read last week in the chapter working with others this is the foundation stone of our recovery it says a kindly act once in a while won't fit the bill um never avoid these responsibilities if you assume them the words are really strong in that chapter working with others about what we're talking about and when you take this literature as word like i do and as janine does my buddy jesse does you start really going okay this is what it's telling me it's kind of like we talked about the blueprint the plan of recovery part of the blueprint is understanding the literature and what the literature is really saying sometimes we'll just graze over it and think we you know think we know what it says so now back to the what janine just read um the doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us okay great as layman our opinion to its soundness may of course mean little as like doctors and scientists you know our opinion to the soundness of it because it's hard to prove may of course mean little right that's why i believe the mental health world doesn't really acknowledge this as a disease as far as the allergy 
because it's really hard to prove, which is in the book, it talks about we develop the phenomenon of craving. A phenomenon is hard to prove, right? They have all these other world phenomenons in the world, and they don't really know the answer to them. They're trying to figure it out. And this is one answer that they don't know, but they try to figure everything out through the mental part. But there's way more to the human being and to this world than any scientist or science can figure out. And part of that phenomenon of craving is we don't really know exactly how it works, but as layman, our opinion to its sinus may of course mean little, but as ex-problem drinkers, it makes good sense. It explains many things for me, which I could not otherwise account. And once I read that and I started learning that once I put it in my body, I don't really have the control. And it's not the fifth drink or the 10th drink. It's the first drink. For the real alcoholic or addict, you put the first drink in your bloodstream, you have just triggered this phenomenon of craving. And you may have not been an alcoholic at some point in your drinking career. Maybe you were a moderate drinker, graduated to heavy drinker, and eventually you became allergic to alcohol and you have this allergy now. Or maybe you had it from the first time you drank. So it doesn't even really matter how you got there. The point is, is if you are that, and if you go through this material of step one, you will know that, then you have but two alternatives. One is to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of your intolerable situation, or the other one is to accept spiritual help. And me as a sponsor working with so many people, Janine would back me and my buddy Jesse would back me, is that is the fact right? And most of us could probably believe that about ourselves. Without this program and the spiritual help, we'd be fucked. Excuse my language. I'm trying not to swear so much. So, and it makes good sense. It explains many things for which we could not otherwise account. Okay, so that, that explains the allergy. But what about the crazy thinking? What about the, the selfish thinking? What about how I work in fear and jealousy and judgment. You know, when I first heard my sponsor speak, those are the things that he explained many things for which I could not otherwise account. He explained in his speaker tape, the first one he, that I ever saw, he was me. And I think like that's the benefit of what this study does is we're able to get into your mind. And this is more later down the road in this study because we get into so much of the defective character, we barely focus on the substance, but we're getting into your mind and we're getting in there and fucking, you know, I know a lot of people that have, that have come to the studies go, they were pissed at me because they thought I was actually talking right to them. And how many people have said that like everyone in the study, because that's what we're doing. We're getting into your mind and the book talks about, we disturb them on the question of alcoholism. This is all to the good. The question of alcoholism has barely anything to do with the substance. It has to do with this crazy shit that goes on in my head. That's the question of alcoholism. That's disturbing you on that. And like I said last week, we're going to say things that are going to shift things in you. And it's going to make you think. Sometimes you're going to be mad at what we say. Sometimes you're going to have the light bulb go off and it's going to go ding. Because we're going on the inside and we're, we're stirring shit up. So like I said, if you do get stirred up and you do get triggered, you know, don't leave. Come talk to me. Come talk to Janine. Keep your eye out for those people. Go talk to them because this disease is in full effect when we get into those states of mind. Okay? 
And so on the next paragraph, talks about we work out our solution to life on the spiritual altruistic plane. Spiritual is the spiritual disciplines contained within this program. There are many, inventory being a massive part of it. Most people's spiritual definition doesn't really include inventory, personal inventory. It includes prayer, includes meditation, and includes trying to be nice. Well, for real spiritual growth, we have to look at the, our actions and behaviors and motives. And we have to bring those to the surface and want to change them. But first, we got to see what they are. And this program actually reveals what those things are. And through the disciplines, which is why step 10 and 11 are disciplines, 10 is an inventory step and 11 is a power step. Once we relinquish self, we will be of service. That is the way that it works because we're wired to be of service as humans, but we are trained to be selfish by society. So we work out our solution on the spiritual. And I always like to say the altruistic plane is actually more important than the spiritual. Okay, It's equally as important, but it's kind of more important. Does anyone know what altruistic means? Others focused? Basic idea? Okay. Okay. Those are all decent answers. I'm going to quote the one out of the dictionary. Unselfishly devoting oneself to the welfare, happiness, and well-being of others. Again, unselfishly devoting oneself to the welfare, happiness, and well-being of others. So when I first started doing service in this program back, you know, eight years ago when I got sober and I finished my steps and I was chairing meetings and do, I wasn't doing any of that unselfishly. I was doing it very selfishly because I didn't want to die. I wanted to stay alive. So I listened to my sponsor and I was told by members and people in the program that you do service. I didn't want to do that shit. When my phone would ring and it was a new sponsee, I didn't want to answer it. But I did it, right? And maybe I'd go help somebody looking for a pat on the back. So I wasn't doing any of these acts of altruism. At that stage, it's an act of altruism. It's not altruistic because I'm not doing it unselfishly. I'm not don't dedicating my life to the service and welfare and happiness of somebody else. I'm doing it for me. So it's very selfishly tied. So just because you do an act of altruism doesn't mean it's altruistic. But we, we got to start somewhere, right? So it's a good place to start is to do the act of altruism. Go against what your ego wants to do and go ahead and help somebody. Go chair a meeting. Answer your phone reluctantly. That's how it has to start, honestly. And then I noticed about, you know, maybe 100 sponsees in or a couple of years in, I started going, wow, I feel good when I help people. And then I'd feel like shit. And then I'd be like, I want to feel good. So I'd call somebody and say, hey, do you want to do some work? Can I chair a meeting? Because I knew that it made me feel good. So the motive is still me. So I'm still doing it because I want to feel good. But I'm not quite as selfish in the motive as I was when I started. So the act is still not altruistic because there's a selfish motive there. So as I do these reluctant actions and I get to a place where I'm doing it a little less reluctant, but I'm doing it still because I want to feel good. And most of us, we say, I, I feel so good when I do that. 
And then we do that because we like that feeling, right? We got to really discern, is it altruistic yet? Or is it still, I'm looking for something, okay? And a lot of people will sponsor because they don't want to be left out or whatever the reasons. And you got to look at the motive behind it. But down the road, I think what happens organically is you just want to help people without reservation. It's without reservation. So the step seven talks about without reservation. And that's what we want to get to. Doing these things unselfishly, devoting ourselves to the welfare, happiness, and well-being of others without reservation. What's the reservation? I usually think, am I going to lose something that I have or am I not going to get something I want? How am I going to look? Once that's gone, then altruism is actually playing its part in your life. And that's really important because that's where the solution lies. That's where the freedom really is. That's the goal. And that is what step seven is. Want to add anything? <laughs> ah, this is a talking stick for everybody online. There it is. <laughs> I'll add a little bit, thanks. <laughs> oh <my laughs> I know. Um, okay, so just going back with just how I sponsor, I just wanted to touch on this bit. Um, I don't know if if I would have went onward if I had somebody say, like, are you gonna do this stuff? Are you gonna like are you gonna go out and sponsor? Because I don't know if I would have at step one. So that's kind of how I go at it, is that I feel like people are at it's case by case completely for me I I know that there's women that want to just get in there and they want to sponsor and that's easy and apparent then there's some that are like they wouldn't say yes even though by the time they get they get to step 12 they're sponsoring so I think it's important to consider that too and I don't have like a hard and fast on you need to get out there and you need to sponsor I think that if if a person is really willing to get sober and to make changes in their life that they can be coached and they can be supported um, in making that transition. Um, what Bill was just talking about, about the spiritual and the altruistic stuff, this has been, I bring, I, I think this is a valuable point too in remembering this with defects, that when we start out, we're not doing the stuff because we want to, we're doing it because we're told to, because it's selfish and we're going to get drunk if we don't. And, and that the altruistic stuff, the the true humility that comes after. So when we when we are turning over our defects and like the anger and the lust and the, the things that are really glaring, like we don't want to do that initially. And, and over time, it just becomes something that we do because it, it's really beneficial and we see that it's working in our spiritual life and it becomes much easier. Um, and I'll start right down. Uh, yeah, the... The qualifying stuff, I think that that's become very important to me. I used to think that because it's a design for living, this can be applied to just everybody and 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 it can and it's helpful for everybody. But the thing that's unique about the alcoholic, we get that gift of like the, the gift of desperation, but the gift of being an alcoholic where we don't have any other choice but the spiritual toolkit or the alcoholic death. So we're backed into a corner. What are we going to choose where people who I had an experience with this uh, woman who needed to be sponsored out of a treatment center. And I had the philosophy of like, the steps will help everybody. But I was busy and I realized quickly that she just wanted a life coach and she didn't want to, you know, really tackle the steps. 
And so there's other people that needed needed the help. And so now the qualifying thing is on my radar because the willingness isn't the same. People might be in a bind, but you know, with, with personal problems and that might make them willing in the moment, but they're not faced with the same situation as an addict trying to get sober. And so that's kind of been my, my focus, that urgency is more important to me. So I, I have actually started qualifying over, over the course of this past year, um, just to see if they're, they're really an alcoholic. Um, I did write down a medical point when you were talking about the, uh, the way that if educators could come and I was thinking about why, when I was working with addicts, why this wasn't like part of it, because now I'm like, if, if only we would qualify people in, in, you know, the addiction world using the book, it would be way better. But I don't know if that could be a thing because as, as alcoholics, we, we tell lies and we tell lies to ourselves. And when we get help, we maybe are telling the truth and then the ego rebuilds itself. And then we change our story. And it's very confusing for for, for the person getting help. And then it's also confusing for the counselor, but it's confusing for the counselor because I remember, you know, like you never know if a person is actually a problem drinker or an alcoholic, you know, if you don't have this knowledge from the book, problem drinking looks like alcoholism and vice versa. And so I think that that causes some confusion. And I know that that causes confusion in the medical world because it, the, the two can look the same, but they're not the same. And we learn that here and we, we learn that in, in the rooms and we, we see that play out, but, but people who aren't in the rooms or working with addicts in the same way that we do, they don't see it the same way that we do. And even like in hearing about it, think that there's a difference as well in hearing about it than actually being in the trenches together um, because we, we have the, the weight and depth of the message because we've been there. And, and then we know, we know alcoholism like no one else really can. That covers all my points. Okay. I want to touch on one more point on altruistic stuff. So we're heavily talking about sponsorship here. Um, that's not necessarily just the case, right? We can be altruistic or altruistic action at home with our kids, with our husband and wife at work. We can do these things everywhere. And when we talk about this program, it's like the pennies and the nickels. You watch the little things and the dollars will take care of themselves. You practice altruistic action little by little everywhere you go, and it will eventually take. And you will eventually down the road be doing things unselfishly for other people. And not, not just for a pat on the back or to get something out of it. You're just going to do it because it's the right thing to do. There's another component that most people don't think about when we talk about altruistic action. If we're not there yet, but I'm going to let the cat out of the bag a little bit because that's what I do. I said I punch home 10 or 15 things. If selfish self-centeredness is at the root of my trouble, then I need to be rid of self, okay? And step six is fully emphasized on rel relinquishment of self. And as I'm interacting day-to-day -day with other people in my life, if I can be aware of what's going on in the interaction and I can be aware that, holy shit, I'm being selfish, being self-righteous, self-righteous anger, selfish lust, whatever, in that moment, and I can call on God and ask him for help, I'm sacrificing my own shit for the benefit of them. And that is a heavy part of altruistic action. But it usually doesn't come till down the road in this program. And most people think that when you are doing altruism, it's just the action. Sometimes it's your thought. 
Sometimes it's your motive. And even though we may suffer the pain of keeping our mouth shut and not saying something that we think we should say, it's an altruistic act, but it's based in self. So it's not actually altruism yet. So faith alone is insufficient. To be vital must be accompanied by self-sacrifice, understanding self, and unselfish constructive action. Through the understanding of self and sacrificing it in the given moment, it will take you to the unselfish constructive action. And that is essentially what the step three prayer is talking about. The step four and five and six and seven, that's everything that it's actually about. So, that's it. Any questions? Why is there a ringing? Go ahead. What I mean is step 11, typically if step 11 has a zero to 10 availability in it, most people only get to a two out of the use of a step 11 effectiveness because they don't understand step 10. Step 10 is about what I just said, self-sacrifice. So step 11, if we don't grow in it, it doesn't become a power step. It becomes a step that is just done as part of a routine that doesn't really promote a lot of change. But once you understand the rest of the steps before 11, it's a pure power step. It, it gives you God's power, creator's power, and you can use that in a really effective way that is actually unbeknownst to most people in the program. Because like I said, it's generous to say, in my opinion, that most people only get a two out of a 10 usage out of what step 11 is. Go ahead, Don. No? Okay. Okay. Anything else? Thanks. Oh my God. I'm getting a round of applause for not swearing. And I'm just going to try to simplify what you just said. Um, I think he's meaning that step 10 really clears the channel. You got to be doing that effectively so that when you're in step 11, you can actually connect. And that's where we're getting the inner resource. We're tapping into the power that is bigger than ourselves. That's where we're doing it. And we're using it to source ourselves so that we're able to get out there in life and we don't tire you know, where that's, that's the, the part of when in the step 11 prayer, where it's like, we're not burning our energy stupidly and foolishly and running around, like just burning our, our own self-will. We're tapping into the power greater than ourselves through step 11 and getting the answers. They intuitively come. We're not rushing out. We're putting time and space between things. And then we can, we can use that to go out instead of, so that's what he means by the power step. Okay. Oh, yep. Okay, the doctor writes, the subject presented in this book seems to be, to me, to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with the alcoholic addiction. I say this after many years experience as the medical director of one of the oldest hospital, hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. There was therefore a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. 
What with our ultra modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside of our synthetic knowledge. Many years ago, one of the leading contrib contributors to this book came under our care at the hospital and while here, he acquired some ideas that he put into practical application at once. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here and with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them were amazing. The, the unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. <coughs> okay. Was that make a noise because of me? You were yelling. Okay. So what I want to highlight here is this doctors, the doctor writes is the same story of Bill W as we read on the first page of the doctor's opinion. So he's reiterating the same visit from Bill W at the hospital. Okay. And what I want to highlight, like we did last week is the doctor is one of the most famous doctors in North America, treating alcoholic and drug addiction. He was uh, many years experienced as medical director of one of the oldest, most prolific, prolific hospitals in the country, treating alcohol and drug addiction. So this guy was no slouch. He was one of the best doctors in the, in the world, probably treating us. Okay. And then next paragraph down second after that, uh, we doctors have realized for a long time. So not just him. But all the doctors in the medical fraternity, he's kind of speaking for the whole of the medical fraternity. Those doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to these alcoholics. Some type of moral rearrangement was of urgent importance. And they all knew this. But, but it's application. How to do that? How do we produce this moral rearrangement? It presented difficulties beyond their conception. They had no idea. They didn't know how to deal with us, but they knew that something needed to be done in here, but they couldn't figure it out. What with our, with our ultra-modern standards and our scientific approach to everything, we were perhaps not well-equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. Hold for one sec. I think that this paragraph actually stands true today, that, that, that professionals would say the same thing where they, they can see that something needs to be done, but how? Yeah, and, and I would agree 100%. And that's, you know, very important. Um, so it says, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside of their synthetic knowledge. What does he mean by that sentence? Anyone? Okay, Chad nailed it. The powers of God that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. So the doctor is basically a scientist. And he can't, they won't use the word God. It's very similar to our society today. They won't talk about God. They won't talk about creator. They might send you for some meditation. But even at the conferences that I go to on addictions, the amount of like spiritual talk is like so minimal. It's all mental health. But it says right here that that these with their ultra-modern standards, their scientific approach to anything, they're not much help to us. But with the scientific approach, 
and the drugs that they use and the methods that they use for the moderate drinker, it works fine. For the heavy drinker, it can work pretty good too. But for the alcoholic, we do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. So that's really important. And the doctor who's been watching us for so long, he's the one who just said the powers of God, but he used powers of good that lie outside our science. So he's been watching, seeing something happening. So on the next paragraph, many years ago, the synthetic knowledge is drugs. Um, everything but the God stuff. Yeah, everything but the God stuff. Okay, so back in the day, they used to perform lobotomies, belladonna therapy. They used to try to get you to impose your own self-will. They tried to get you to do all these different methods and to try to change your own self. But it didn't work, and it doesn't work. And there's more evidence to what we're saying in here. So the synthetic knowledge is anything medical in the medical fraternity. It's the opposite of God. Okay. So many years ago. Go ahead. Okay, sorry. Many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book. So again, it's Bill W. Just like on the previous page. Okay. Came under care in our hospital. Here he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. So that was Bill W. coming back to the town's hospital with a few ideas in his pocket. He had worked with the Oxford group a little bit, gained some knowledge there. He had already been working with uh, Dr. Silkworth and Silkworth was trying to sell him on the idea of the allergy. And Bill came back with a little bit of a plan. So later, Bill W. shows up. He requests the privilege of being allowed to tell a story to other patients here at the town's hospital, where Bill used to be a patient. And with some misgiving, we consented. So Bill comes in, hey, can I, can I help you guys? I think I got an idea that might help us out here. And the doctors are like, dude, you're just a, a stockbroker that's an alcoholic and you're hopeless. And like, I don't know. And with some misgiving, they consented. So they decided, okay, we're going to give you a shot, but we're going to fucking watch you. I feel like it went down kind of like, I don't know what we're doing. And this is really unethical. That's what I was saying last week where they're like, okay, well, we're willing to just try anything because we tried everything we can think of and nothing's working. And also just to the point of sponsoring, when the question comes up to me, like how early is too early to sponsor? I go back to this part and I'm like, I don't know, like Bill was in the, Bill was sponsoring in his hospital gown. so. I don't know. So with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we have followed through, though, have been most interesting. So the doctors are watching, and they're watching Bill go to these different people. And Bill's not talking much about their alcoholism. He's talking to these guys about his alcoholism, his spiritual malady, and his relationship with the Creator, right? In fact, many of them are amazing. So now the doctor's saying, holy shit, look at this guy. Look what he's doing. This is amazing. We've been trying to figure this shit out for hundreds of years. And this guy waltzes in here with a little bit of a game plan. And this is amazing. They're like blown away, these guys. Um, the unselfishness of these men is we have come to know them. That's the program. We help each other with no asking for reward or, or anything. 
um, as we come to know them, the absence of profit motive. We don't want anything from them. Their community spirit is inspiring. The fellowship and how we just love each other. And we just, you know, you're an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. You piss your pants. I piss my pants. High five. Right? That community spirit is indeed inspiring. <laughs> to one who has labored long and wearily. That's really descriptive. This doctor's labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. Basically to the point where he's burnt out. Like, you know, imagine having to try to help us for like your whole life and not actually having a solution, what that would do to you. I can barely handle it at all normally. Like back in the day before I was an alcoholic, my brother was an addict, al alcoholic. And I was kind of sober, but I would try to deal with him. And I'm like, how do I even do this? I can't even like sit with this guy. Right. So imagine this doctor and all these doctors, like how burnt out they would have got trying to impose their will. This is awesome. Um, they believe in themselves and they believe more in the power, which pulls these chronic alcoholics back from the gaze of that. What I like to say here is for me, I believe in myself today. I didn't always believe in myself. I had a lot of self-worth issues. My whole life was based on what you thought of me and how you viewed me, how much money I made, what I drove, where I lived, what I looked like, how I sounded. My whole self-confidence was based in what everyone else thought about me. And then I lost it all. Pride goeth before the fall. I fell. It was all gone. It was blackness. And then I came here and I've done this work. And I built a good, strong relationship with my God. And I believe in myself today. But I believe much more in the power that pulled this chronic alcoholic back from the gates of death. With my relationship with God, I can be the best version of me who I ever wanted to be. And I, and I can be lifted up by that power and feel good and confident. And when I make decisions, I'm not making decisions out of fear and insecurities. I make decisions out of love for myself and truth. But that's only because I try to rely on my creator, my higher power. The more that I get to know my higher power, the more that I get to know me because my creator is actually in me. So these men believe in themselves. And they believe more in the power that pulls the chronic alcoholic back from the gates of death. And as we get further into the study, in step seven, there's a line that says, the most profound result of all. Out of all of this work we do, out of everything we do, the most profound result of all was our change in our attitude towards God. Why? Because God becomes the attitude. What is God? God is love. Love becomes the attitude in everything that we do. And that is a beautiful place to get. As a human, maybe it's not always like that, but it can be like that most of the time. And I sit here, used to be violent, angry, road rager. My family would walk on eggshells. Today, I'm not like that. But I'm telling you, I've done a ton of work in this program. And I know a lot of people here who, like Shanda, I remember when she first came in. She's a different woman. Like, And there's many people I know in this room that are completely different people because they built a true relationship with God. And it's not a theoretical one. 
The theory of God is not enough. You will drink with that one. God has to be applied and working in your life through a practical application of spiritual disciplines and altruistic action. That's how this works. The theory of God will not suffice. And step three actually alludes to that, which I won't get into right now, but we will talk about that. I just want to add to that truth is also part of how I explain like the attitude of God, because sometimes people can think Bill's pretty mean. I've heard that a lot that he can come across like, you know, but it's, it's love. It's just like telling the truth. It, it doesn't sometimes feel loving. Cause I think that the idea that love should feel a certain way is just an old belief that I had to shake from society, you know, telling me that love had to be like this. But to me today, love is telling the truth to somebody and, and love doesn't exist without the truth. So, um, when I talk about that with people, I, I, I think God is love and truth. And, and that's a really good point because when you walk authentically in the being of who you're supposed to be, you don't need to justify yourself anymore. And if you're still, if you justify yourself, it's wrong. So walking in that integrity and walking in that image and likeness of your creator and being open to realize you can make mistakes and being receptive to information and what people say. And really looking at that, right? And then moving forward in it. But it's important to walk with truth. And the journey to truth is based in love. So real truth is always based in love. But you will hear people all the time saying, oh, it's my truth, it's my truth, it's my truth. Well, it's my traumas that make me believe this. So that's your truth. Traumas based in fear. Traumas based in pride and ego. Ego is edging God out. And if God is love, then the ego is working in absence of God. But you can use the best of your intentions to run your life. But under the intention is motive. So most people run their life on intention, but they still fight everyone and everything. But they're not really fighting everyone and everything. They're fighting themselves. That's really the deal. So as you uncover the ego, as you take some blind leaps of faith, to try to uncover, discover, and recover, you can get to a place where you're walking with your own truth and you don't need to justify it. So when people like Janine said, may think I'm whatever they think, that, that's okay. And a lot of people think whatever they think about me. And you know what? I'm totally cool with it. I show up. I'm consistent. I'm persistent. And I let that shit go. And every now and then it might bother me, but I have some pillars that I can talk to to get out what it is. I'm going to share an example. So the other night, me and my girlfriend, um, you know, she wasn't on time and I was waiting, driving around the block. She was, at, she was at the bar. And my girlfriend's cool. She's normal, right? She was at her bar with the friends, but it was late and I was fucking annoyed. That's the bottom line. She got in the car and she's all happy to see me and shit. And I'm just like, grr. And I don't want to fucking laugh and smile, right? I'm happy to see her, but I'm in my pride zone. Like, don't you know you're wasting my time right now? And it's like 10 to 1. <laughs> and I don't want to give that up, right? <laughs> and then we go home and like, she's really trying to get me out of her, right? And she's really a sweetie, right? And 
And I know, and I'm just sitting there kind of grumpy. And she's like, what can I do? And I'm like, nothing, fucking nothing. And I'm just holding this. And I, I know inside, I'm like, what are you doing? Why you not let this go? Just talk to her and get it out. And I'm like, nope. And then, and then I, I remember like a while back, I was thinking in my life, I'm like, fucking, I kind of hate love, right? I got to love, I got a love hate relationship with love. Because love makes you do shit against your pride and it it just fucks things up sometimes, right? And being being single is easier and then falling in love is hard. And then I remember one sec, Ron, and I was talking to her and I said, I have a love-hate relationship with love. She's like, oh, really? What is it? And then I closed my eyes and I just started talking about this actual, like, in my heart, love-hate relationship with love because it's hard, right? And then I talked about it with my eyes closed for like five minutes. And then I opened my eyes and I'm like, I'm good now. But, you know, like, it's fucking ain't easy, right? And I don't even know why I told you that story, but. I do. Why? So that I can say. And then she turned, turned to you and said, Bill, time, time is a colonized thing. And we are an abstract. We just flow with it. And there is no sense of time. We don't, it was ish. She was just having her time till she was done. Ish. Oh my God. She got there when she got there. Okay. All right. Ron, I, I, I agree hundred percent. So it wasn't love. It's, it's my ego, right? But it's the journey. So again, like back to the journey of truth. You understand, and I'm with you. And like on the journey to truth, right? It's a journey. And sometimes the truth isn't the truth. And even though I was mad, that wasn't the truth. That was me learning what the truth was. And until I expressed it in my eyes closed vulnerably with her, I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to tell her the truth and tell her like, I, I need to keep the edge, right? I can't give up the edge. It's like being naked running outside here. But that's where the gifts lie. That's where the gold is, right? And that truth was based in love and that was the truth. And that's really what I wanted to say. I just couldn't come. We've all experienced that, being mad at somebody and then they apologize and they're super nice, but you still want to be mad at them, but you can't or you shouldn't be. That's me and him. <laughs> all the time <laughs> uh, are we gonna do you want to keep going or break or yeah. what do you want to do keep going no let's go on Take our break. break okay we are going to have a break to the people online we will be back in roughly 15 20 10 15 we're gonna compromise on a 15 minute break Okay, so I had, before this book study started, I had committed to giving somebody a chip on a Monday night, but I'm here. So they agreed to come here and get their chip. So this is, this is my first sponsee coming out of treatment. And so she's been along for my, my ride this whole time in, in recovery. And so I just wanted to speak about this a little bit as it pertains to sponsorship, because 
We've learned a couple of lessons along the way that I just wanted to share. Um, okay, so I think the first thing that I learned through this relationship was that sponsorship is often somebody's first step in trusting a higher power. When we admit that we're powerless over alcohol, it's really saying like, if I don't get help from something outside of myself, I'm going to end up drinking again. And so having somebody relying on, on me when I, I don't know if I was like ready for, for that coming right out of treatment, but the treatment center was really big on your 12 step, get out there and do the work. And in hindsight, it, it was like, it was really, really good. Cause she probably saved me from, you know, getting swallowed up into the depths of the small town I was trying to escape from. Cause I went back back there and I was alone for the most part. I wasn't, there was not the same type of recovery community and she would be phoning every day. And she phoned like just so diligently. And she was like, Hey, and even if she didn't really have anything to say, she would be, she would be phoning. And, um, she just like, I've, she, the most enthusiastic person that I've ever, uh, ever worked with in that she would just go out and do it. She trusted completely in what I, in what I was saying, which was crazy. Cause I was just kind of given, like, just call me every day, get some pillars, like, and I'll figure the rest out. <laughs> that was kind of like what I was doing. Cause if I didn't have, uh, two sponsees underneath me coming out of treatment, I, I wouldn't have been so rushed to figure it out. Cause I felt like I owed them some sort of explanation around like what step six and seven was, uh, cause I, I, I didn't, I wouldn't have known how to take someone through that after um so anyways she phoned me all the time and she uh just she was just so enthusiastic about the process and trusting about the things that were suggested to her um I, there was a couple of difficult situations in the treatment center and I said you know you gotta you gotta go on your part just tell the truth and then she would and it would be so easy for her it seemed and so I just really admired her and um so I guess Bill was a big part of this for us because I mean, I'm talking about Shanda. And so Bill was in front of me, kind of coaching me through what was going to come. And this is the whole idea around sober patterns where I was really feeling lost, like it was early recovery and I didn't know what I was really doing, but I knew what I didn't want to do. And I didn't really know how to like go into the unknown. I was falling into, you know, trying to go back after jobs I thought I needed. And I was having a, I was going through all these things, right? And, and then so Shanda was also calling and we were going through these things together. And we were like, it was, it was, it was crazy. I think back of all the things. And one of the things that was big was she was calling and she was like, how do I know if God's a theory? And I'm like, uh, let me ask Bill. <laughs> so like, and then I would call Bill and then he's like, like, I don't know. And it was so confusing. And I like, it's hard to explain what God is God a theory. God's a theory to me. Like I explained to people now, like God's a theory until it comes to your step six, where now you're either at a place where you're going to choose comfort and do what you always did, or you're going to choose character building and do the thing that you don't want to do. And, and, and when I was doing that, and when she was doing that, it was all the shit we didn't want to do. And there was lots of fear around it. Mostly there were so many big fears for both of us, we had like these external, like I needed, I had a window to move and she had, you know, some 
challenges going on in the family, like some external pressure. And so it, it really just like shaped my understanding of recovery and of sponsorship and of the importance of having other people who are able to guide you in a way that is from the book um, so that the messages are consistent. And like, I wasn't, I wasn't ever getting like just opinions. It was always like back to the book. I, and then I would give that to her and there was, we, we loved page 72, which was like, go at it with, <laughs> with a, um, with a proper display of morality and honesty, and you'll stand a better chance of getting what it is that you want. And um, the lessons, yeah. So um, I guess the, the final thing I'll share with you about this and is that she fired me well, once at least, maybe twice. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, and so it, it was... It was challenging because we, I came from a town that there, there wasn't a lot of cultural diversity and she was moving towards like expanding her own culture and, and we had to come to an understanding with that. And, and I think like she wasn't firing me because, because like, it was because we were kind of going in different directions, but we really weren't. And it was like, we had built so much history between us that when shit hit the fan for Shanda. She like, I, I don't know. I was, he always tells me if there's an intuitive thought, pick up the phone, text them, do whatever, da, 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 that's how I do it. And, and it's true. So I was going through a red light or I was going through a green light and I, <laughs> and I thought of her and I was like, I better send her a text. So she was like, she was upset and, and there was some stuff going down. And I said, well, meet me over here. I'm going to this meeting. And then she came and then we sat in the vehicle and we talked for a couple hours and got back on track and then then we've been good but like we've learned to that we've like we've had to have some hard conversations where we didn't agree and we couldn't kind of we had to get each other's perspective and now looking back there's been so much growth since then that it's like that was silly to even like I don't know why we were doing that but but the, but this 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 idea of empathy empathy and empathy in that instead of giving up and doing what we've always done which for me, it was avoid and, and not have the hard conversations and just go on to the next person. Um, the, the relationship was, it's a, it's a place where this is a relationship we need to trust in because like the relationship with your sponsor and, and with like, when you, when you mess up to be able to go back and there's so much growth in the, in the conflict. And so, you know, like attachment relationships, like emotionally attached people you're going to have conflicts and you're going to have like hard times and in recovery, that's the first relationship where it should be a safe space that you hash it out. And, you know, like when you hurt each other's feelings or you misunderstand to go back in that. And because that's been the most valuable lesson is that there's so much wisdom that comes in the hindsight of things where like now the, and the relationship becomes easy. So to just jump sponsors or to just like get pissed off and move on to the next person. Cause there's lots of people that will take people through the steps to not give up. Like don't give up unless it's like, you're really not getting advice out of the book because chances are it's your ego. And if you can work through that stuff, it's so valuable. Like it's not replaceable to be able to have a relationship with someone with that history and that understanding and the things that you've worked through together. So I'm really happy to give this chip. This is like also the last year for me too and all the lessons that came with this. And I'm really proud of you. And I'm really glad that that we've stuck it out. And uh, 
Yeah, I love you. So. Sandra, I'm an addict. Um, so the biggest, it was the truth telling. It was truth telling. Um, not that I'm a liar, but those hard truths that I wasn't able to speak on. That's where I, that's where I faltered. And this wasn't very long ago where I faltered. And I, I was like, I was falling and I was really worried. And so when she sent me that text, I had just I just left a visit with my kids who are now in my care, by the way. <laughs> so working this honestly, honestly saved my life. Like working this for real and like honest, honestly. Um, and going back to Janine, when she sent me that text, I was just like, oh my God, thank you. You know, like, and so I got on the phone with her and I did, I met her at that meeting and I was just like, I'm so scared. I don't know what I'm doing. And this is, this is really tough for me. And as, but when I was like on the train after we got off the phone and I was going to meet her, I was like, she's a God-centered woman. This is somebody that God put in my life. And he continued to do that from the get-go. Like he, from the get-go, he was putting Janine in, in front of me. Um, and I was just like, it was, there was a deadline to do, to do this step five. And so when I went to ask her to do the step five I was just like oh my god this is so annoying <laughs> right so I did and and when she came to meet me to do the step five I was like is there something that we have to sign <laughs> like a disclosure or something to say that you're not going to spread all this stuff about me <laughs> she wanted a confidentiality yeah. form <laughs> and she's just like no and I was like I thought she was kidding with me I really did and I was just like but wait you have to have something and but no and, it, and so we went on, we went on and, um, and things like the conversations that we have around God was totally a theory. And I was like, when I first heard that, when Bill first like said that, um, and Janine was relaying to me and I was like, but he's not. And I was internalizing this in, in myself. And I was just like, but he's not. And I know he's not. And he totally was. <laughs> Right. And, and like Bill says, he doesn't, he's not a theory when you're doing that step six, like continuously looking at yourself, you can't see self on self. So I am proud to have this. It's overdue. It's like for a little bit overdue. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have this. Thank you so much. Okay, and just quickly before we get going, um, sorry for the people online. I'm not sorry, actually. Um, this this is kind of the gifts of recovery, and and uh, recovery took me back to my culture. Right, I was a First Nations guy that never wanted to be First Nation, which was at the root of a lot of my addiction. Um, I've come a long way in my culture and learning and growing and know doing the things that I do within my culture now ceremonially and I won't get into that but I met a guy along the way in recovery his name is Shane B and he's in the room tonight and um, he's often volunteered to help me and my elder and the guys that that I sundance with to get wood or sweat or to do whatever it is right Shane's always there to be of service he's always you know wanting more right and uh you know, I had this drum given to me um, 
by a guy that I know at work and I already have a drum and it sat on my desk. And the other day, it was about a week ago. I just had this intuitive thought. I'm going to give this to Shane, right? I know he's got a, I know he's got a, a drumstick. He's got a drumstick, but he's got no drum. <laughs> so I just want to give this to Shane. Oh. Oh. So if you would switch down here so they can see. Uh, I'm grateful for this gift. Um, I, I've been drumming and singing for 20 years. I do have a drumstick. And now I got a drum. Okay, let's get down to business. So we will finish the doctor's opinion tonight, and that's probably about it. Which is good. Could be worse. Janine's been talking a lot. Okay. Um, are we only there? Of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. Okay. So of course the alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. And this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to, the, to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit they and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly, astonishingly difficult to solve. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people most must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. If any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us for a while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become part of their daily work and of their sleeping moments, and the most cynical will not wander that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel that after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement growing up among them. Okay, let's stop there. Okay, um, back to the top of that page XXV triple I. It talks about the phenomenon of craving is limited to this cap class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol or drugs in any form at all. And that is the alcoholic, okay? We have this allergy and it doesn't occur in an average temperate drinker. Even in a heavy drinker, he does not have the allergy. Um, moderate drinker for sure does not, okay? Um, we can never safely use drugs or alcohol in any form at all ever again. So there's a lot of people that just think they're alcoholics or they're just addicts. 
It doesn't matter to me. If you're an alcoholic, you're an addict. If you're an addict, you're an alcoholic. At some point, this will take you down to the bottom, like very bottom. Um, the other thing is, is that us as people who might get injured or have, you know, medical issues, we go to the doctor and they give us painkillers and morphine or whatever it is, fentanyl. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a relapse start at the hospital when somebody took some, some painkiller just to ease the pain because the doctor said it was okay. So we got to be really diligent when we go to hospitals and they're going to administer sedatives to us for whatever it is or painkillers. We got to be really careful, but that's where alcoholism kicks in because the person will be like, wow, this, I'm at the doctor. This is supposed to be like this, but in the back of their mind, they know this is a bad idea, but they go and try to seek some vicarious pleasure out of the drugs at the, at the hospital. But once it hits our system, it changes us. So a lot of these people come out and they end up getting back on their substance of no choice. You know, I really love the, uh, the, the DOC, right? Drug of choice. What's your drug of choice? It's actually your drug of no fucking choice. This isn't a power of choice, right? But in the medical fraternity, it's drug of choice. It's for us, it's drug or alcohol of no choice. We have lost a power of choice. Um, next paragraph, frothy, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. Most people know what that is if you've been in the book and you're sponsoring, but a lot of people don't. What that means is people will beg you to quit drinking and you won't be able to quit. It will seldom suffice. Your kids, stop that, stop. Just, you know, can you please just stop for me and, you know, Johnny? No, he says yes, but he can't stop. For the wife, for the job, frothy emotional peel for the real alcoholic and addict seldom suffices, okay? Um, the message that can interest and hold these alcoholic people must, must have depth and weight. So the message that can interest and hold you guys as alcoholics must have depth and weight. The depth is experience. The weight is something's working. So when we go into a meeting and we're sharing our experience, strength, and hope from the, from the podium, the way that we go about this is we share the depth of our experience and the weight of what's working. That's the message that can interest and grab these alcoholic types. And you stay consistent with that. Far too often we go to meetings and people are sharing bullshit. They're sharing their drug logs. They're sharing my cat pissed on my bed this morning and I don't know what to do, right? There's a ton of meetings that don't have a step as a topic. When you don't have a step as a topic, you're subject to your own opinion, theories, and ideas. And what does an alcoholic like to talk about most themselves? So you just open up a can of worms for a whole bunch of nonsense at a three-topic discussion or at a meeting that reads the daily reflections only. It's only, it's morally and philosophically comforting. And I can tell you there's meetings that are full of fucking potheads that are at those philosophically comforting meetings because they're not talking about the steps. We're not talking about this illness. So it's really important to know when you're sharing or when you looked for your sponsor, what did you look for? Like there's a reason why, you know, this place is full, right? Because it's probably a message that has depth and weight. People want a better life. They want the best life, right? And I don't pull punches on the talking about the illness. 
I'm disturbing people on the question of alcoholism everywhere I go. And I piss people off. But at the end of the day, like I heard somebody tell me today, you're speaking from the heart. I do, man. That's what I do. I don't fucking want nothing out of anyone here. I want you guys to be the best fathers, mothers, children, sons, whatever. Right? I don't want nothing from anybody. I just want you to be the best. And that's the message, right? We talk about the illness, which is the defective character, which is what we will do more as we go. And then we talk about the solution to that, which is the relationship with God. That's what people want, man. They want a good life, right? So that's important. And it talks about it more in the next chapter that we're going to do. There's a solution. Um, but in nearly all cases, it says nearly all. So not every single case, but nearly all. Their ideals must be, must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their life. This isn't about getting your old life back because you don't want the old life back because if you build a real relationship with your God, you will not want your old life back. But if you don't build a real relationship with God, you build a theoretical one, the old life's kind of good enough. But that's not what this literature is trying to produce for us. It's about a, a new life, recreating our life. In step three, it says we were reborn. You're fucking reborn, man. You're different. Your roots have grasped new soil. You stand on a different footing. You're a different human being. And that is the God dope right there. A uh, couple lines down, maybe eight lines down. We feel after many years experience that we have found nothing. Remember, this is the doctor, the medical fraternity. We have found nothing, zero, which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than what? The altruistic movement now growing up among them. This movement of all these fellowships, the 12-step fellowships, they are an altruistic movement for these men and the families. The book was actually designed for the real alcoholic to follow directions. The suggestions are for the medical fraternity, for the family, and for the non-alcoholic, for the employer, to the wives. But for the real deal, when you read the original manuscript, which I'll just kind of allude to now, when we get to the step three, we're going to be doing the original manuscript, not the big book, even though it's the same, but it's different. And why? Because it'll punch home really what we're actually trying to do with our creator. Okay. That's all. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit they, it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems like the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, discontented until then they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as many so do, the phenomenon of the craving develops and they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging resourceful with a firm resolution to not drink again. This is repeated over and over and, and until the person can experience the entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. On the other hand, strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once the psychic change has occurred, the very same person who had seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that he is required to follow a few simple rules. Do you want to go first or you want me to go? 
you go ahead. I'll just okay. add. So men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. That's why I drink. I love the effect produced by alcohol. This paragraph is probably one of the most important paragraphs in the whole book. So listen up. Um, the sensation is so elusive. So when alcohol and drugs used to work for me, that sensation that I got when at work for my solution to my life, it is now elusive. The sensation is so elusive that while we admit it is injurious, I know that it's bad for me. Okay. They cannot, after time, differentiate the true from the false. I have lost the power to tell you that this is bad for me. I know that it's bad. And I still want that effect of what it used to do when it worked for me. But that is now elusive. And I keep trying to grab it. It's like trying to catch a chicken. You try to catch a chicken, you're jumping all over the place. You're trying to hug them and you come up with a few feathers. And that's the kind of result that you get from the drink or the hoot after it doesn't work anymore. But you keep searching for that because there's a little part of your brain that so says, I need relief. I need it now. What's always given it to me? Ding, ding, ding. Click. I need relief now. And you reach for the pipe or you reach for the whatever it is, drink. And you take it. And the sensation of when it actually worked for substantial amounts of time, it's now elusive. But because you got to rewire the brain, because the old brain needs the same relief, okay? Um, to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. Your alcoholic life is the only normal one, even in recovery, okay? They're restless, irritable discontent. Here is the spiritual malady. Here is the manifestations of self. This is it right here. Restless, irritable, discontented. Unless we can again experience a sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking the first few drinks. So maybe we're kind of living our lives and we're going along and we're in untreated alcoholism. We're angry. We're restless. We're discontent. We're agitated. People aren't listening to us. The fucking road rage is on. Fucking the dog's pissing on my shoes. The kids are running in front of the hockey game and I just can't take it, right? I'm, I'm, I'm in the malady. I'm in self. And then it says, unless we can experience the sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking the first few drinks. So then think about this. If you've ever relapsed or in your old drinking career, it's, I couldn't wait sometimes to get home and have that first hoot, right? The first hoot or the first drink. Then it was like, boom, everything's okay. Like right now, right in that moment, everything's okay. I'm present with my high. I'm present with that sip. I'm present. And I got a lot of ease and comfort out of that for a moment as, as I took that first one. And I got my ease and comfort from all of the bullshit with that life's piling up on me in my own head. Um, comes out once by taking the first few drinks or whose drinks they see others taking with impunity after they have succumbed to the desire again. The word succumb means fail to resist. After you succumb, from living in the malady enough, you succumb to the desire. You fail to resist. You are powerless, stone cold sober of picking up that drink because you're living in the malady. And you succumb, you fail to resist, and you pick it up. Because you can't differentiate the true from the false. Because you are looking for the sense of ease and comfort that you need. The problem is that the sensation that you got over time, it doesn't work anymore. 
And then you put it in your body and it says, as so many do, the phenomenon of craving develops. Boom. I'm powerless over putting it in my body. And now I start the phenomenon of craving because it's in my body. And then I go through the well-known stages of the spree. My last spree was six years. Six years spree. And we all know people who have had many years sprees. Some people are on sprees. The spree can last a day, a week, or months, or years. And the spree will often result in overdose or accidents that kill you based on your being high or drunk. Emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to do it again. You finally come out of the spree. You're beaten. You're guilty. You're shameful. And you snap out of in a firm resolution not to do it again. I'm done. This is it. I'm fucking done. That's all of us. This is repeated over and over and over and over. Unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, a moral and emotional rearrangement like we read earlier in the doctor's opinion that they knew was necessary, but they couldn't do it because they don't have the powers of God that lie outside their synthetic knowledge. We need a psychic change. We need to rearrange this shit. Okay? There is very little hope of his recovery. So a lot of people come into the program. They don't do fuck all. A lot of people can get here. God opens a window here. Change your life. I'll crawl through the window. I'm going to do a few things. I start going to meetings. I start hearing how you guys got to go through all these steps and do some drastic shit. Fuck, that's a little scary. I don't know if I want to make amends. I don't know if I want to look at myself. I feel pretty confident that I'm not going to drink again. I call that the grace of God sobriety. Usually lasts anywhere from like a week. You might even get eight months out of the grace of God sobriety. And why is it the grace of God? The grace of God means undeserved gift. You have a gift that you don't deserve because you haven't fucking done anything for it. That is the grace of God sobriety. Ron. Uh, I would say that's, yeah, maybe similar. Resting on your laurels. But there's really no laurels to rest on. There's just, you not even have done anything. So resting on your laurels in step 10 comes from like actually doing some of the work and then getting comfortable and self-satisfied. Yeah, I think the word laurels means your past achievements. So like you did some stuff and then you let up and then you're trying to just use your past achievements to keep going. But but you have to keep doing the work because it's a daily reprieve kind of thing. Um, can I add something? Yep. Are we done? Uh, yeah, I was going to just, a story came to me, I remember um, having a conversation around, if you could take a pill, it was asked to me, if you could take a pill that would allow you to just drink socially, would you? And then before I could answer, it was like, well, no, of course you wouldn't. You would want to take a pill that you would not have a consequence to the outcome of your getting wasted. And that was true for me, where it's like, why would I want to socially drink? I wouldn't want a pill to socially drink. I want I want to achieve that 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 state of getting out of myself to get out of the restless, irritable discontent. And um, that was something that it was conversation um, while I was talking about the step one and the spiritual malady and what that was like. Trying to get out of it, we don't want to socially drink. We want to be completely out of ourselves so that we don't experience it. Um, and then I was just also going to add that looking at others with immunity, with impunity, like that they're just not having any consequences. And I, 
I did that a lot too. I knew a couple of problem drinkers and that actually slowed me down from getting help and confused me because I was always looking to them like, well, how can they drink and they can black out and they can have these consequences. They can have a DUI. They can do, they can go to work and they can stop, you know, they can stop for however much time that they, you know, and it looked very similar. And I think like I was looking at a lot of problem drinkers who it looked alcoholically, but I'll never know. I just was always trying to do what they were doing because they could pull it together when they, when they needed to go to work or when they had their kids for the week or when, whenever life needed them to be sober, they could do it. Where for me, it was a wild card and it was a lot of effort. And so um, in the rooms, I see that happening too, that it, it can look like you can have people coming in who they were high bottom maybe they're alcoholic maybe they're not we kind of talked about this last week where you don't know that the state a person comes in if they really are alcoholic or not if they have the spiritual malady that demands that we do this and so if I'm listening to somebody who's talking about you know a spiritual solution um doing like step 10 off the wall say and 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 not doing the proper course of action but yet they seem so happy you know, they're doing, they're getting an outcome and, and it looks like they're doing it a certain way. So again, it's like, just when you're comparing, don't just go back to what you know about yourself and back to what the book says, because comparison can really be misleading and confusing. Okay. So maybe we won't get the doctor's opinion. Audrey. That's rude. Anyway, so let's keep going a little bit here. Okay. On the other. Hold on. Hold on. Oh. So once the psychic change has occurred, though, and what is the psychic change, really? The psychic change is step three prayer. Build with me. Do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Take away these difficulties. That's the beginning of where we start the introduction into the psychic change. And as I get into the fourth step and I start seeing the shit that I'm doing that's causing my failure, my mind and emotional manipulation and how my thoughts actually fuck me and the world's not really fucking me, I fuck me. And then I learn more about that in the five. These are the things I need to discard. And then I become super willing in the six as as willing as a dying man can be. The thing about the program is not many people talk about six. They don't talk about the character change and the character building. We talk about just don't drink. Just don't drink. You'll be okay. If I don't take the first drink, I don't get drunk. How do you not take the first fucking drink? That doesn't happen without a psychic change. So with the psychic change, it says... Uh, the same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he ever despaired of solving them, suddenly, easily finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only effort necessary of that being required to follow a few simple rules. Requirement is a must. We follow the rules. The rules are the spiritual disciplines, working out our solution on the spiritual and altruistic plane. We work the spiritual program of action not a theory or a moral and philosophically comforting idea of what God might be. That's what this book can be. Oh, me and God. Oh, yeah, I'm turning my will and my life over every morning and every night. And I'm self-willing these principles into my affairs because I said sorry to somebody today and this is working for me. 
Next week, what the fuck happened? He was just at the podium saying how tight him and God were last week, and he's drunk on fucking Friday. Because God's a fucking theory, man. If God's a theory, then God's actually an effective mental defense. But the book says that we won't have an, an effective mental defense against the first drink at a certain point. So the ego attaches to the idea of God, just like he attaches, the ego can attach to the idea that, look what happens when my kids are away from me. I don't want that. Like, it's the same kind of thing. The ego attaches to anything at once. So we have to work this program through the practical application of what these steps and directions are actually teaching us. So he was telling me this stuff the first time that we went for coffee. It's a lot. Like, it's a lot, and it didn't make any sense. And it's like, he's like, well, how do you, he's talking about step 10. And he's like, well, what is step 10? What is step, and I, like, I literally just met him. Like, and he's like, what is step 10? What is, and so I told him the step 10. He's like, stop doing the, step off the wall. And I'm like, hey, stop yelling at me. I'm like, just tell me what step 10 is. <laughs> do you remember that? I didn't yell at you. Yes, you did. It was intense. <laughs> So anyways, what, what I can say to just like simplify what he just said is like, is like the micro moments that he taught me. It's like, just do the micro moments, which looks a lot like nothing. It looks like I'm really actually doing nothing sometimes where I felt like I had to be like having some sort of something happening, but a lot of things that were happening, I look back and they were happening, you know, like even just attending a meeting or choosing not to reach out in and like one of the things that was on my sex ideals for step five was don't text men when you're bored or lonely so a lot of times that looked like nothing that looked like okay what am I going to do instead I'm gonna and then I had a list of what I was going to do instead so I'd pick like call a friend call a sponsee hang out with my kids whatever so in that way it looked like nothing they were these small little micro decisions but they weren't micro at all and so the 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 practical application, like I would get frustrated being like, well, I don't know if I'm a theory or if it's a practical, like, I don't know. And, and now looking back, it's, it's like, it shifted slowly with the micro moments. And there was times, more times that I was not in the zone than when I was in the zone. And then that shifted. And then now it's like, I can see that I really do have a reliance on a higher power that's mine and not borrowed from somebody else or whatever. So if you're wondering, how, how this all works out in a, in a day-to-day it's it's in the small moments and in the in the small decisions and those are the big things that that add up to a serene recovery and an ability to be effective and like all those things take all the micro moments and the big moments are actually I would say maybe not as important as all the little things that are happening in between okay thank you Jenny that was awesome um so there's not much real deadly material left in the doctor's opinion anyway. Um, we're going to stop there. We will read the rest of the doctor's opinion next week, but we're not going to go much into it. All the good shit we've already covered. There's a couple little things that we'll touch base on, and uh, that'll be it. But we're going to end with a prayer.